Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey everyone, we've got an absolutely enlightening episode of the Tennis.com podcast today. I'm Nina Pantic and my co-host Irina Falcone will be on soon. Our guest is top 50 Kiwi doubles star Marcus Daniel. The 31-year-old just reached the quarterfinals of the Australian Open with Philip Oswald for his best Grand Slam performance ever. That happened just out of hard lockdown where they spent two weeks in a hotel room in Melbourne. Marcus tells us all about his experience and his breakthrough run. But he's far more than just a tennis player. He's made it his life mission to help others. He donates a percentage of his salary each year to charities. And during the shutdown in 2020, he founded High Impact Athletes to connect athletes and the general public with the most effective, evidence-based nonprofits in the world. Over 30 athletes have joined the cause, including Stefanos Tsitsipas, Milos Raonic, and Rajiv Ram. The main areas of focus are animal welfare, extreme poverty, and climate change, all of which Marcus is extremely passionate about. He explains how he got into tennis and philanthropy, how he's combined these two loves, and why a philosophy called effective altruism is so important. Here's our very educational conversation with Marcus Daniel. All right, Marcus, welcome to the show. It's awesome having you. Tell us how you're doing and where you are. Doing great, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm currently at Saddlebrook Resort in Florida. Uh, met my wife here just for a couple of weeks of training and R&R after a, a pretty long and difficult stretch in Australia. In Australia, you made the quarterfinals, your career best run in doubles, and you came out of a hard lockdown. Can you walk us through the discovery when you got there that you would be in the hard lockdown and how you dealt with it? And then what happened after? Because you had an amazing tournament. Yeah, it was a it, it was a tough one to stomach at the time. I mean, there were 17 planes that were sent out to pick up players and three of them had cases on board. Uh, so our plane our plan was a little more understandable because one of the two positive cases was a flight attendant. So you can't tell where on the plane she's been. So I sort of understood that all of us had to take the cautious route and, uh, and go into hard lockdown. Uh, still uh, getting that email, you know, about 20 hours into being into that hotel room was a real heart sink moment. Yeah. Um, and Look, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's one thing to know that you're going to do two weeks and accept it and say, okay, well, what's on the other side is worth it. It's another thing to think that you're going into a two-week training block, more or less, with you know five hours outside the room and then find out that you're actually not going to do that and you're just going to stay in this, in this you know, sort of four-meter by four-meter space for the next 14 days. So I think it was the unexpected part of it that was really hard to deal with. Uh, and yeah, for me, it was like the first week was, was not too bad. I sort of stayed chipper and, and stayed positive. And then the second week was really hard. It just started feeling super long. Um, I started getting a little depressed at watching all my opponents walk out to the practice courts every day and feeling like I was just falling further and further behind. Uh, my doubles partner was right next door to me. So we were going through it together. And 
on one side that was you know it was a real bummer because I think we were actually the only doubles team where where both of us went through hard lockdown uh but on the other side it was a shared experience and you know we we had the same expectations coming out the back end of it we were saying you know it's going to be a, a real uh struggle to find the balance between uh getting enough practice in to be prepared and not doing too much so you get injured and after you've been in a hotel room for two weeks doing too much you know that that could mean an hour on the first few days so yeah, look, it was it was a huge challenge. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to go through it again. But then making the quarterfinal off the back of it, you know, it ended up making the trip worthwhile. So tell us, like, what would be your day like during that during that time? Obviously, you said that the first week was a little better than the second week. Uh, take us through, like, what you would do throughout the day. And um, what did you do to kind of not go through that deep hole of depression that second week? Well, I tried to keep a decent routine going. So I tried to wake up at a reasonable hour in the morning. Uh, you know, I, I have sort of a, a meditation practice and a journaling practice that I generally do in the mornings. So trying to stay really rigid with those sorts of things and, and try to book in the day a little bit because, you know, when you don't have like practice or things that you have to leave the house or leave the room for, it's really easy to slip into this sort of amorphous space where time just floats and you don't really feel like you're doing anything so uh being really really regimented with doing things like meditation and journaling in the morning i tried to uh get at least one session of exercise done uh at some point in the morning uh and then a lot of days tried to do a second session at some point in the afternoon and actually this is i think i was a little luckier than most in this because i do have a lot of interests off court and uh so I've got this, this charity that I started last year called High Impact Athletes, and that basically keeps me as busy as I want to be. You know, there's sort of infinite work that I can be doing for that. So I was setting up a lot of calls uh, with, with other athletes and with other organizations trying to sort of build that as much as I could. And, and that really helped. Uh, but then, you know, as I said, after a week or so, I just really missed the fresh air and feeling the sun and... Uh, it was a real struggle not falling into a bit of a depression. I mean, you know, I was trying to to communicate with my loved ones as much as I could. It was it was a little difficult. My wife was over in the States, so the time difference wasn't great. There was, you know, a large chunk of the day where we where one of us was asleep. Um, but yeah, I think the things that I learned were to keep as much structure as possible and to stay as busy as possible. But you know, that's that's not super easy when when you're in a hotel room. I guess in hindsight, though, it was all worth it because you had this career best run. But I wanted to ask you, is was there a difference between how doubles players are being treated versus like top singles players that were in quarantine? Could you tell that players are getting different kinds of treatment in terms of things they got delivered to their rooms or even like which hotel you were in? Is there a difference? Yeah, there was a difference. There were, I guess, across the board, there were four hotels. So in Melbourne, there were three hotels uh, with the singles players getting the fanciest one and then going down, you know, the doubles players. Uh, got the least fancy one, but actually in this instance, it worked out better for the doubles players because our windows opened a couple of inches. So we got a tiny little bit of fresh air, whereas in the other hotels, uh, I don't think the windows opened. And that, you know, just something small like that actually over the course of two weeks makes quite a big difference. Uh, and then I think the the thing that was a little different and that caused a little bit of strife in the player community was 
that the very, I think, the top three or four players on men's and women's sides were quarantining, quarantining in Adelaide. And they had a very different experience. You know, they had balconies. They had, uh, I think they were allowed sort of five or so people to travel with them. Uh, and they were allowed to practice for five hours a day, I think, uh, uh, on court. I think uh, that that may not be completely accurate, but that's what I think happened. And then were able to do sort of gym and physio when they got back to the hotel. So that was uh, slightly different in terms of uh, conditions and in terms of preparation. Uh, but always at any tournament in the world, there is a bit of a disparity between preparation and conditions between players. I mean, as a doubles player, I just know that the singles guys are going to get the better practice times and, and the better practice courts. And, you know, they're just going to have all of these little things that make their journey a little bit easier. And in a lot of cases, I think it's deserved. I mean, the, the top singles players in the sport, they drive the sport, uh, they generate the most revenue. And so I think they deserve some of those privileges. But when it comes to time spent on court and difference in, in preparation in terms of, you know, like being able to be physically ready for, for an event like the Australian Open, then I think the, it gets a little tougher and it, it's a little more difficult to say whether it was right or wrong. Uh, but yeah, so there, there was a difference um, for me. Uh, you know, I was I was happy with the room. I was happy with where I was. But I, I know some people were a little disappointed. So um, one question that usually all our followers are interested in is, you know, how you got here. Because, I mean, we're talking about Australian Open quarterfinals. Unbelievable. But everybody has a story. So do you mind just sharing? I mean, you don't have to dive into the whole thing, but... Just how you started, who got you into tennis, and um, how you're here. Sure. Well, I guess it started, uh, my parents played for fun, uh, and I grew up on a sheep and beef farm in New Zealand, and we had this old asphalt tennis court at the farmhouse, and, you know, sometimes in the evenings, my parents would jump out and have a hit, and I have an older brother and an older sister, and they would want to join my parents and, and, you know, hit tennis balls around on the tennis court. So obviously I wanted to do everything that my, especially my older brother did. Uh, so from, you know, an extremely young age, I was trying to hold tennis rackets and, you know, there are photos of me when I think I was sort of one and a half, two years old, dragging a tennis racket around and sort of, you know, batting, batting balls around the house. Uh, so I, I had a tennis racket in my hand from a very young age. And then I, I played a multitude of sports growing up, which is sort of the way it's done in New Zealand. You know, we, we don't, uh, all sports are on the table. So, you know, I was, I was playing basketball and soccer and surfing and snowboarding and, and just anything I could get my hands on. Uh, and then when I was around uh, 14, or, or I think just before I turned 15, I was actually at a level where I was playing soccer and tennis for, for the New Zealand squad. And I got told I had to make a decision between the two. Uh, by the New Zealand Soccer Federation. They said if I wanted to stay in the team, I'd have to uh, train year-round in soccer. So that sort of forced a bit of a decision on me, and I chose tennis. And that sort of that, that decision to give up something that I really loved, uh, it made me think, okay, well, if I'm, if I'm giving something up like that, then I should probably focus quite a lot of my attention on tennis and, and do this a little more professionally. So I left home and went up to Auckland to a boarding school and, and started training a little more. And that's when 
I guess that's when I started thinking that a professional tennis career was what I was going to aim for. And uh, yeah, that, that got the ball rolling. And then I think in uh, around 2014, I, I made the decision to focus solely on doubles. I'd had some success in singles, uh, but had never actually played a full season due to injury. And I just had one patch where I, I lost first round of a challenger, but won the doubles. And then each subsequent subsequent week I was in qualies of singles, but I couldn't make it because I actually went deep in doubles every single week. So by the end of that stretch, I think my doubles was at, you know, close to a hundred and my singles was sort of 500 or something like that. And it's, yeah, at that point, I think the decision was somewhat made for me. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to an episode of the Tennis.com podcast with Marcus Daniel. He's telling us how he had his best career run at a Grand Slam after a two-week hard lockdown. Keep listening. I heard somewhere that you considered college, but you only went on one visit and it was like to Illinois or somewhere in Illinois and you wanted to be near the oceans and you were like, you know what, forget <laughs> college tennis. So do you wish you'd gone on more visits or have you, did you ever think about maybe you should have gone for a year or two or three like other players have and then gone to the tour or, or everything is good as is no I, I really do I think it's, it's the biggest regret I have in my career is I wish I'd done more research into college and I wish I'd done more research into actually how good some of the college systems are and you know for me I think it would have been a much better career move if I'd gone to college uh, matured physically because you know very few guys are actually ready for the pro tour at 17 physically let alone mentally um and yeah I did I went to the University of Illinois and look it was it was nice you know it was, it was a good trip but I just couldn't picture myself enjoying life for four years amongst the cornfields when I've grown up in New Zealand with the mountains and the oceans so you know I, I wish I had gone to sort of California and and seen that that aspect of the college lifestyle and the other side of it was I mean this is misinformed but I thought that going to college was kissing goodbye to a pro career um and now I know, you know, my generation are the, are the Steve Johnsons and the John Isners. Uh, so I know that that's, that's really not true. But look, I'm, I'm happy with how the careers turned out. And there are always what ifs with any career. But yeah, that's, I'm, I'm happy with 2020. Um, Nina and I, we've actually talked about that. Uh, I think in our generation, it was the same thing. It was, you know, if you didn't make it in the pros, it was oh, it's such a failure to go and get a full ride to a D1 school. Oh my goodness. So I'm just curious. I mean, in New Zealand, was it, it was just like that? It was kind of like, okay, you need to make it on the pro tour or else college is failure. Or what did your coaches think? Well, it was, it was more that everyone I'd seen from New Zealand who went to college hadn't come out and made it to the top of the professional tour so actually a guy I really respect and I took a lot of advice from is a guy called GD Jones and he went he went to the University of Illinois and that's actually how I got connected there and why I went on the visit uh, and he came out and he got to around 300 I think like 300 330 pretty quickly and he was just plagued by injuries but he was 
he was sort of the pinnacle of what I saw come out of college. And for me, being a 17 year old with big dreams and big aspirations, I thought, well, if that's sort of the pinnacle, then that's not quite good enough for me. Um, and yeah, look, I, I was misinformed. I should have done more research. Uh, I don't think that's one of the one of the negatives of coming from a really rural background in New Zealand with you know, the people around you don't really understand the the funnel or the pathway towards becoming a really top pro is you can't know what you don't know. And, you know, my parents didn't know anything about it. We were taking advice from the people we, we thought gave good advice. And, and I wish we'd done a little more research. Every path is different. I think a lot of players similar to you didn't know what they were doing when they got into certain colleges and had to transfer or, or quit or whatever. So every path yeah. is very, very different. But you mentioned that you're from a rural town. Are you like famous back home in New Zealand? Uh, well, I think fame's a relative term in New Zealand because we're, we're, we have this thing called tall poppy syndrome where, you know, if you're if you sort of do well, then people cut you down to size. Uh, which I sort of love, you know, it's, it's what makes Kiwis Keeps Kiwis. You humble. Yeah, but it, it's also, it's, it's sort of hard to fight against. Um, but I mean, I guess, you know, from the very small area where I'm from, I guess I'm quite well known, but tennis in New Zealand isn't a huge thing in the media. I mean, in New Zealand, if you're not a rugby player, you're sort of not recognized as an athlete so much. Um but yeah, like in my very, very small town, I, I guess I've got a small name. So last year, everyone was feeling bad for themselves in this pandemic and the shutdown. People were watching a lot of Netflix or working on their own tennis careers and hoping to, to make the most of things. But you made the most of things in a very, very unique way. You started this company, it's organization called High Impact Athletes, and you're trying to help people. You're trying to help people figure out where to donate their money better. Is that correct? Sure. Yeah. So it's called High Impact Athletes. Uh, we, I guess, serve two functions. So the first function is we're an educational platform. Uh, we try to educate people on the ideas of effective giving. So that's the idea that some charities are a lot more effective than other charities. And uh, we represent 14 charities on the websites, uh, all of which are extremely cost effective, extremely impactful and, you know, this is this is provable and demonstrable through this ex, this extensive research that's been done by third party charity evaluators. So we try to educate people about why it makes such a difference where you donate and, and uh, the fact that you donate to an effective charity rather than a less effective charity. And then the second function that we serve is is a portal to facilitate those donations. So through high impact athletes, you can send your money to any of those 14 charities, or you can lump your money into, for example, a, an environmental portfolio. So it gets split evenly between the four environmental charities we, we represent. And uh, yeah, high impact athletes doesn't touch any of that money. We, we don't take a cut. So 100% of your donation goes directly to where it can do the most good. And the intention is to get as many athletes on board as possible, uh, ideally pledging a percentage of income uh, towards these effective organizations. And then through these athletes actions to try to create a snowball of impact amongst their followings and audiences. Uh, so yeah, using, using athletes profile and influence to try and bring as many people on board as possible to the idea of effective giving. That's really awesome. So I'm just curious, I'm I'm always curious about this. How did it, how did the idea come to you? 
was it from a personal experience where you're like, wow, I just donated uh, a bunch of money to this charity and it was actually not used effectively? Uh, so I, I personally got involved in effective altruism, uh, which is, I guess, the name of the greater movement around effective giving when I was, I think it was in 2015. Uh, and that was the first, that was actually, so the year after I decided to solely play doubles, I had my first year where I actually made money in tennis and, you know, was able to put some money away in the bank, which was novel and, and lovely. Uh, and with that little bit of financial security, I, I had this really sort of overwhelming feeling that I wanted to give back in some way, because as you guys know, tennis is necessarily a self-absorbed sport. You know, you have to spend a lot of time focusing on yourself uh, and that never sat perfectly with me. So uh, at first chance, I started researching, okay, how can I give back best? And that led me to the effective altruism movement and a website called 80,000 Hours. And through 80,000 80, Hours, I learned that I could actually use my tennis career to do a huge amount of good. And the two ways that really made sense were one was earning to give. So the more money I earn, the more I can give away. And the second was advocacy. And that's, you know, the, the better you do in a tennis career, the bigger platform you have and the better you can uh, try to influence or persuade people about what you think is important. Uh, so I started donating and, and pledged a percentage of my income uh, the next year and just built that pledge up. And then last year, uh, all tennis players essentially lost their jobs. You know, everyone was just sort of sitting around doing nothing and, and not really knowing when our next earning opportunity would be or when we'd next be able to play tennis. And I started thinking, how can I do more? Uh, and I didn't feel like I could up my pledge. Like I didn't feel like I could donate more money because I just didn't know if I was going to earn any more that year. So I started thinking more on the advocacy side of things and thought, okay, what is the best way that I can try to bring more people along with me? And what I landed on was, was starting an organization, starting a brand and trying to leverage my, my connections and my relationships in the sporting world to to try and bring effective giving into the total sporting arena. You know, tennis has around a billion fans worldwide. Uh, other sports have billions of fans. So between all athletes, we have a huge following. So my idea was to try and start something that could develop its own momentum and yeah, bring, bring people on board in the sporting world. And yeah, that was the conception of high impact athletes. And it's been a really, amazing exciting ride so far we've only we've only been public i think probably three months three and a half months and there's already been amazing buy-in uh and i'm really excited about the legs that it has and the potential that it has for impact in the future You've got a bunch of big Thanks. names already on board as well. I know I saw Stefanos Tsitsipas, Milos Raonic, Rajiv Ram. These are all like big names helping boost this even further. But when you mentioned, Irina mentioned, oh, okay, charities that maybe don't use the money the way they should. That was what I thought too when I initially was reading about you and how you want charities that actually value and do the most with their money. But I also saw an example that it's actually also things like, all right, you want to donate to a charity that is training seeing eye dogs but you could also take that same money and donate it to a charity that's actually healing blindness. And the latter would be more effective at helping more people. And I didn't think of it that way. I thought, oh, some of these charities are scams and I got to be careful. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, 
So I, th I think it's a, it's a dangerous line to take to say that some charities are scams. I think there are some scams out there. Unfortunately, you know, it's, some people try to take advantage of others. I do think the majority of charities have really good intentions. It's people trying to do good things in an area that they care about. And that's fantastic. Uh, the thing that I don't think is prevalent enough in the charity world is really rigorous measurement and evaluation trying to be analytical about, okay, here's the amount of money coming in, here's what it's being spent on, uh, and here is actually the bottom line impact of what that in intervention does. And so what these charity evaluators do is they do really deep, extensive research into what's the bottom line impact that these organizations have and how much does it cost? So that example about the seeing, seeing eye dog, uh, that's also a little dangerous because puppies are super cute and everyone loves puppies. And, you know, we want, we want all the puppies to live. Uh, and, you know, like, let's have more cute puppies around. I totally agree with that. However, <laughs> you know, the, it, it, it does cost around $50,000 to train a seeing eye dog. And you might have, you know, let's say 10 to 14 years of that dog changing someone's life you know, helping someone navigate life. And, and that is a really positive impact. Uh, but then for that same amount of money, if you donate to a charity like the Fred Hollows Foundation, where they're performing cataract surgeries in the most impoverished places in the world, they can literally cure the eyesight of a thousand or more people. And, and that's, that's even more life-changing. And that can last for decades. You know, often the people who have cataracts are a little older, they're 50s, 60s but they could live until in, in, into their 80s. So you might have a 30-year impact for $50. So these are the sorts of decisions that I think people should think really carefully about when they're making donations because uh, it, it is just a, a simple fact that uh, if you donate to some charities over others, you could literally have thousands of times the impact. And that's the sort of thing that I'm really trying to, to promote through HIA. That's awesome. I, I honestly, I was in the same boat, Nina. I'd never thought about it like that. That makes a, a makes perfect sense. So um, what do you see, like, what's the end goal for you with HIA? I have some really lofty end goals. And before, before I talk about that, I just want to say that, like, your, your reaction to it was exactly my reaction. Like, it, it makes so much sense when you think about it. And it's, it's strangely it's strangely, strangely not a big part of how people think about charity. And I really think it should be a bigger part. So that's sort of the, the main thrust of what I'm trying to do. In terms of dreams and, and goals for HIA, my end goal is to, is to make pledging a percentage of income to be sort of a norm for athletes, at least for high earning athletes. Because for better or worse, athletes do have big followings. We do have big audiences. Uh, and, you know, it can be for just like hitting a ball well or for running fast. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we should have a big, powerful voice, but we do. And what I'm hoping to harness that voice for is for something really beneficial for humanity and for the planet. And so, you know, I... I see this future where if I get enough people on board and enough really high profile names on board, then uh, kids who are coming up through the ranks, kids who are, who are aspiring to be professional athletes, part of that aspiration is, is to give back. Part of that aspiration is to do something awesome with their profile and with their uh, millions of dollars. Uh, so yeah, my, my goal is to 
create a legacy of giving back as a norm in in the greater athlete community and you know that could be an absolute moonshot uh but i think it's a worthy goal and yeah i mean if if i do my job well and and i get some amazing people on board i think we could we could really make some steps towards it so i also read that your goal your three main areas are animal welfare extreme poverty and climate change and you're also on the atp player council newly elected for this year so have you been able to combine those two facets your your interest in things like climate change and like the fact that tennis players are extremely wasteful and your new position on the council because you know there's a lot of room that to improve, I think, on that. Hey, it's not tennis players. Don't just blame tennis players. I know, but he's on the <laughs> tennis council. Yeah. Yes. Uh, short answer is yes. Uh, so I actually had a call yesterday or the day before. Uh, one other guy on the player council, Kevin Anderson, he's passionate about the environment. Uh, so we had a call with some of the ATP staff uh, about environmental initiatives, about how the ATP could be doing more in a few different areas or, or be doing better in a few different areas. And I think most of the program is confidential at the moment, but I think, you know, in, in the next short while, you'll be seeing big moves from the, a, from the ATP uh, to move in a direction of, of giving back and doing good. And I'm really excited about it. Uh, so I guess among those cause areas, the environment and animal welfare, and I think actually those two are quite closely tied. That's sort of my, my big passion. And I really do think the ATP is going to be making some some waves in, on the environmental side very soon. So, yeah, I'm, this was the, the two things that I sort of made my, my pillars uh, when I got voted on to the player council. One was trying to improve the lot of doubles players. And the other was trying to improve ATP's relationship with the environment. And, yeah, uh, definitely, definitely going to be putting more work into that going forward. So if you were to be able to share the message with whoever's listening to the podcast right now, um, what would be the message to someone that's like never donated to a charity or is getting into it and just got like a big check and is like, okay, what do I do with this? I think my message would be to really consider very carefully what is the most good that I can do with this donation. Uh, I think that makes a world of difference. Uh, and if you ask that question and you research that question, then you start going along pathways that lead you to the most effective organizations in the world. Now there's a huge amount of information that's readily available online that, sh that tells you why and how these organizations are the best in the world at what they do. It also tells you which cause areas are more important than others and why. Uh, so, you know, with resources like, well, high impact athletes is one, but that's just the tip of the iceberg with resources like GiveWell, uh, Founders Pledge, Animal Charity Evaluators, those sorts of research organizations, uh, you can dive as deep as you want into the why of, uh, of where you should give uh, a donation. And I'd also say that donations are definitely the most tangible and direct way of making an impact on the world, but there are other ways that we can, we can do a huge amount of good too. I mean, one is by promoting the best organizations in the world so that hopefully other people uh, give their resources in a more effective way rather than a less effective way. Um, and direct work, uh, you, you know, I, I sort of gloss over it a little sometimes, but uh, if you have time and, and energy and you want to volunteer or work for uh, a charity, then, then uh, if that's, you know, something you're leaning towards, then ask yourself the question, okay, 
where where could I put my time and energy so that it's best spent and so that it's most impactful in the long run? And so, yeah, always coming back to that question of how can I maximize this, I, I think is the key message. And it's something that as athletes, you know, we keep asking ourselves that question all the time because in, in sport, we have to optimize continually to, to even just to stay up with the competition. Uh, and it's, yeah, I think it's something that should be asked all the time in, in the charity world too. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to an episode of the Tennis.com podcast with doubles pro Marcus Daniel. He's educating us all on the importance of giving back what you can, where you can. Keep listening for more. I feel so ignorant because I always thought the biggest question when you're donating was how much should I give, not where should I give it? So this has been incredibly educational. And you're also a member of something called Giving What We Can since January of 2021, which means that you've pled, pledged to give 10% of your income every single year to charity. Was that terrifying or is this just something that you felt you need to do to you know, walk the walk, that you talk the talk? And um, how does one decide to do this? Well, it, it actually, it really wasn't scary at all. So I started, uh, I believe in 2016 with a 1% pledge and that felt really comfortable at the end of that year. So the next year I bumped it up to 5% and I've just sort of steadily been increasing that amount. Basically what I do is I make a, a minimum percentage pledge at the start of a year and then I get to the end of the year. I look at what that number is and then I say, okay, how can I, can I get a little more uncomfortable with this and sort of try to stretch that donation as much as I can? Uh, and yeah, so last year in 2020, I ended up donating a little over 10% of my income. Although, you know, it was, it was the first year of COVID. So that income was, was a lot less than normal. Um, and then it just sort of felt right at the start of this year to make my minimum pledge going forward 10% because it is something I am comfortable with. Uh, and I think, if people really look deeply at what they spend their money on and what really gives them pleasure and joy in life, I think it's, it's actually, it's, it's not ludicrous to land on the, the idea that, you know, giving 10% of my income away is actually something that makes me happier in life. You know, I'm, I'm not going to miss that 10%. It's not going to affect my quality of life. Um, it's not going to, to make me less happy that, you know, I, I, can't buy a fancier car or something like that. But knowing that that 10% is uh, helping or saving or improving the lives of hundreds of thousands of other people or animals, that's like, that really hits me in my heart. And that's something that I can hold on to and, and be really happy about. So, you know, I, it's almost like an investment in my own happiness, which is a really selfish way of looking at it, but it's sort of the way it feels. No, it's not. I don't, I don't know about you, Nina, but I'm fired up and I'm I'm going to have to go pledge and I'm going to look you up and yes, please. There's some donations that are coming your way. I honestly, it's been so educational and I'm, I'm just so happy that we were able to talk to you and you were able to share all this with us. It's awesome. No, thank you guys. 
it really it's really cool especially because i just feel like what you're doing is educating people on on something that we don't really know that much about and it's 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 really inspiring as Irina said but i also before we let you go i do want to ask you about tennis what is your next plan in making this money so you can donate more where are you going next <laughs> well yeah so so this is the cool thing you know like if i do well in a tournament because i've made this pledge it's like by making the quarters of the Australian Open, I know that I'm at the end of the year going to affect so many hundreds or thousands of people or animals. And so it's like every match that I win is a win, not just for me and like my pride in myself and that sort of stuff. It's also a win for something so much bigger. Anyway, uh, so next plan is either Acapulco or the Middle East. Uh, it sort of depends on whether we get into Dubai or not. Uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll be playing one of the two 500s and then on to Miami, and then I think we'll be heading over to Europe. And the plan is to stick with your same partner, Philip Oswald? Yes, yeah. We've we've built a really strong team. I think we've been playing now for, I want to say, a year and a half, not a little longer. And uh, yeah, that was one thing from the start. We were both really sick of the sort of chopping and changing in the doubles world and, and wanted to set up a, a long-term partnership. And Actually, you know, I think the quarterfinal at the Aussie Open was testament to our commitment to each other and how much we believed in the team and, and you know, that, that sort of teamwork that a longer term partnership brings to the court. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pumped to keep going with him for as, as long as we possibly can. That's awesome. Well, we wish you the best of luck. And once again, thank you so much for taking the time, educating us inadequate, ignorant fools, as Nina said over here. Um, but yeah, you know, safe travels and, uh, we hope to see a lot from you in the, in the near future. Oh, thank you so much guys for having me. I really enjoyed this chat. It's, it's cool to see people who are receptive to these ideas and, and get fired up about it. So yeah, really happy yes. to chat and, and thanks for having me on. And where can awesome. we send people if they want to learn more about what you're doing? Sure. So the, I think the website is a really good informational tool, uh, that's at highimpactathletes.org. Uh, we're also, I've got this amazing lady working for me on the social media side. And so we're all over all of the socials. Uh, if you just search for high impact athletes, I'm sure we'll pop up. And yeah, please, please do follow us. We're a fledgling organization and we can use all the followers and help we can get. We'll be on that. Thank you so much once again. Thanks a lot, guys. From the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, this has been the Tennis.com Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay caught up as we bring you new episodes every week. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app, as well as tennis.com slash podcasts. You can also watch the videos of our episodes on Tennis Channel's YouTube page and tennis.com's Facebook page. We're your hosts, Nina Pantic and Irina Falcone. We'd like to thank our editor and audio designer and video editor, Christina Koseva, as well as the entire Tennis Channel team for their support. Thanks for listening.